The most important lesson from the book was the lesson that I forgot to write and didn't put in the book. And that was that, um, and as I like to say it, you know, not mincing words is don't get fat. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Kim Barrett Show. I am your host, Kim Barrett. And on today's episode, we are joined by Glenn Poulos. Glenn has sold companies, sold products. Uh, he's a little bit of the sales expert, you would have to say. Uh, so today we're joined by him and we're sharing some of his stories from you know, growing these companies, selling these companies, and also a little bit about his book, Never Sit in the Lobby. So if that's uh, something you want to hear, make sure you tune into this episode. And of course, if we can ever help you with your marketing to get you into the lobby with those businesses you want to do business with, then head over to our free Facebook community, www.joinmygroup.com.au. We go live every week, free training on helping you achieve all of your marketing goals and more. But until then, let's jump into the show. Glenn, thank you so much for joining us today. Really appreciate you making the time. Oh, thanks for having me, Kim. It's great to be here. Great to have you. Now, I always like to kick off the podcast the same way every time, which is if I met you at a party and we were chatting and I said, Glenn, what is it that you actually do? What's your go-to answer? Uh, I usually sort of lead with, uh, you know, I'm, I'm kind of in sales or a salesman, but really I run a sales company, a company that, uh, well, most companies sell products, but, uh, you know, it, it truly is a sales company where we, we represent companies from around the world. So I kind of lead with, I, I'm a salesman or, you know, uh, or I run a sales business. And what's, um, I'm o- always curious because my assumption is for salespeople that you would know when you were a little kid growing up, you probably didn't say to everyone when they're like, what do you want to be when you get older? I want to be a salesman. Like probably wasn't right. the best thing. Uh, <laughs> I'm assuming. What's, uh, what, what got you into the world of sales? Yeah. Our slang is, you, you uh, we call them, you know, peddlers, right? <laughs> yeah. 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 Uh, that's our, our euphemism. We call each other, right? Um, well, the funny thing is that I had the most diametrically opposed job to a salesperson prior to being in sales, which was, I was a government employee, a civil servant, if you will, working, working for the federal government. And, uh, I'm in Canada, I'm in, uh, near Toronto and, um, the, in Canada, the weather service called, uh, the, De- uh, department of environment, environment Canada. And, uh, I worked for environment Canada. I went to school for electronics and, uh, I was fixing electronic stuff and, um, my, uh, boss, ex-military guy, um, he pulled me aside one day and he said, dude, you're in the wrong job. You, you should go into sales. And, you know, I was so young and impressionable. I never really, I don't remember, you know, questioning him why, and you know, you know, what are the facts on this? I just took him, took him up on the suggestion and started looking for sales jobs. And, uh, shortly thereafter, I, I quit my, uh, my, you know, guaranteed pension job with the government and, uh, I went into the wonderful world of sales. And what, like what attracted you into that world? Cause as you say, obviously having that, you know, government pension, pretty much sec- like one of the yeah. most probably secure jobs that there is, what made you, uh, take the leap into uncertainty yeah. and I'm sure a world of, uh, commissions and, uh, and having to Ray, uh, you know, hunt, hunt and, to eat. And the funny thing is that as well is that, uh, you know, I do run my own business. I sold the company in February actually. So, uh, and I might have to stay for about three years, but, but. I've looked back in the last number of years, I've been to a number of retirement parties for all of the civil servants I used to work with that have all put in their, their requisite amount of time, you know, and, um, 
you know, now they've got their guaranteed defined benefit pension and everything. I'm still worried. I'm, I'm like, have I done this correctly or what? Right. But, uh, I suppose in a few years I'll get to retire. But, uh, so I went for, uh, I actually didn't apply for a lot of jobs. I, I really only applied for one job and uh, I got the interview and um, I, I think I, you know, and I do tell the story in the book, but uh, the, um, uh, you know, I went for the first interview and the guy's name coincidentally was Kim. And, um, and so uh, I went for the interview the next day in the morning, I followed up and I called and I said, you know, have you made a decision? Right. And they're like, no, we haven't. No, not yet. And so, that afternoon and I phoned again, right? And I asked and I said, have you guys made a decision? And they said, no. And then the next day I phoned and they started screening me at that point, right? And the lady's like, I'm like, well, is Ken there? And I, no, Ken's busy. He's tied up. And I'm like, oh, has he made a decision on that sales job yet? And uh, no. And so, you know, a week or 10 days later, Kim calls me and he says, Glenn, you're going to Montreal. And um, I'm like, okay, sounds great. So, uh, now, remember, I worked for the government and I was driving around uh, Ontario, Canada, you know, near Toronto and stuff. And I was fixing all this electronics. And the car that they gave me at the government was like a, I think it was like a Chevy Chevette. It was the, think of, you know, in the eight, 1985, the cheapest possible car that you could ever sit in with, it was with crank windows, no radio, no air conditioning, nothing like that at all. And that's what I was driving around with my, uh, with my tool bag. And uh, so I'd fly to Montreal and one of the other owners of this sales company was picking me up at the airport and he rolls up uh to the montreal airport and uh he's driving a bmw 750 and of course being the young impressionable dude that i was i was duly impressed right and i get in this car and i'm like holy shit, this sales looks like a great career right and so we roll into the office and and um his there's four owners of the company three of them were in quebec and uh the so the when he pulled into his parking spot beside him were two more bmw 758 uh cars and they had license plates that were like one digit apart right and i said i'm definitely going into sales there's just no questions about it this is the perfect job for me right so i did the interview in the quebec and they sent me back home and a few days later kim called me gave me the job and then he hired me and uh the funny the punchline of really of the story is that when uh he said he, he brought me in he goes you know we didn't want to hire you and i'm like oh i'm like what well why did you hire me and he said well he said you know you were the only one that followed up twice a day for 10 days so we figured you know if you do that much to get the job we know how much you do to keep the job and so we decided to take a chance on you and um but what it really attracted me to it was what um you know that that uh uh former military dude he said you know he, he explained that there was uh, good money in it and he gave me this this saying that money he, money flows out of a pen glenn not out of a toolbox right and um so you know i guess making more money you know, you'll make more money uh you know writing out contracts than you will fixing uh you know uh weather stations and, uh, and things like that so so i was you know uh you know um it, there's a there's a chapter in my title that's actually titled greed-based learning and uh so my greedy little nature i just you know i thought hey this is the perfect job for me i want to make lots of money and um so i jumped into sales what was the growth from there obviously uh, like having your own company and, and yeah. writing books on sales and things like that 
Like what's yeah? Uh, what was some well, actually? The next I, I, I've I I will tell you, but I will, and I'll try to tell. I'll tell you the short story just to be uh, you know for brevity. But I've actually started and sold two companies. Both of them were in business for fifteen years. Both of them sold for um, well into the eight figures, and um, the except. What happened with the first one uh, was not what you would ultimately call an ultimate success, which I'll explain quickly. And but the second one, which I sold in February, was a was a resounding success, and quite happy about that. But so um, and just to t- just to uh, tear the bandaid off that story, and then I'll tell you how I got into how I did that. Um, we we were approached by a public company to do the process of an RTO or reverse takeover. And I mean, and this was uh, about 17 years ago, and uh, I wasn't very sophisticated in the area of, um, you know, the public markets and, you know, and these, some of these, these deals and how the public, I was really, you know, kind of deer in the headlights about all that, but they were throwing millions of dollars of shares at me. And so, uh, you know, uh, but not a lot of cash. Okay. And so, and they own many other companies in Canada and other, elsewhere and, and, uh, including some large cell phone stores and at, at face value, it looked like a very successful company. And of course the owner, uh, not the owner, but the CEO was driving an Aston Martin DVI or DV9 or something like that anyways, and, uh, DV something. And, um, and so, I guess we didn't do our proper due diligence on them like they did on us. And, um, and they basically, as a, we were a division of this public company and I owned a lot of the shares and they were worth millions of dollars when they bought us, but they started sucking us dry for money as an operating unit to pay for a lot of other units that we didn't know about at the time. And within 18 months, to make a long story short, they bankrupted our division and a hundred of us were out of work, but ultimately the shares crashed and went dropped to a sub a penny and my millions and millions of dollars of shares that I couldn't sell them because I was an insider. I was actually one of the largest, uh, the largest shareholder actually in the, in the, in that, uh, public company at the time, I was the founder of the original company they bought. Um, and I had more shares than anyone else and they went to almost zero. And, um, and so, you know, people, and so people are like, you know, well, you know, why didn't you jump off a bridge or how did you survive? Like, losing all that billions and millions of dollars. And I'm like, I didn't have millions of dollars. Like I had my company and I made good money, you know, and it was doing fine. And we were, you know, uh, we're, and, um, you know, we're in the technology space, uh, particularly in the wireless space and we were doing great. And, um, you know, and I mean, I was having, had what would considered to be a, like a good living. And then all of a sudden I got millions of dollars of shares, which I couldn't sell. So my life didn't change. And then I still had a job and I still made decent money. And so my life never changed. Right. And then all of a sudden here today, gone tomorrow, I just didn't have it anymore, but I didn't have a job either. So now I had no income. And, um, so I had to start over, but, uh, but I worked for how I got, you know, into these companies was I was working for a similar company and, and our, our business model, uh, the Kim that hired me, they represented companies from around the world, technology companies, and, and they were selling primarily like instruments that electronic engineers use to do their jobs, like all kinds of like measuring instruments. It's a, it's a large field, electronic measuring instruments. And at the time, the big name was like Hewlett Packard, which is now called Keysight, but, um, you know, Tektronix, Roden Schwartz, these are big global names and at measuring instruments. And these are the kind of products we were selling. And so 
for five years, I, I sold these products and uh, I had my territory and I was a salesman and carried my bag and made calls. And I have all sorts of rules in my book about how I got the door and you know how I conducted myself as a salesperson like that. And after five years, it was um, six months before I turned 30, I had this goal. I wanted to be you know, uh, I wanted to be an entrepreneur. I wanted to start a business before I turned 30. And so I approached them and it was October of, uh, of 1991. And I said to him, look, I've got this idea, you know, you've got all these vendors that you sell from around the world. I'd like to take two of them that was in the, in this other specific technology space, you know, that they weren't really focusing on. They were just lucky enough to have these couple of vendors. I said, I'm going to take these two and then I'm going to go approach a bunch of other ones and I'm going to get like 10 of them. And I'm going to start another company, which I'll own and you can own part of it as well. Now you'll own two companies and I'll own part of my, of this company. And the president said to me, he said, oh, you know what? Like write out a plan, bring it to me, but I'm going to show you how it's never going to work. You know, it's just basically keep your job and keep your nose clean or whatever. And so uh, the next day I, uh, <laughs> the next day I resigned and I wrote out the plan was I resigned. And, um, the second thing I, uh, I did was I went home and I said, honey, uh, the, uh, cause uh, six days before I signed my resignation letter, I actually signed a marriage certificate that I got married six days before that. And I went, Oh, by the way, honey, I quit my job. And she's like, you what? And so, yeah, so I up and quit my job and I convinced two other guys to quit their jobs in Ottawa and Montreal. And we started this company, Toronto, Ottawa, Montreal. We ultimately had people in Vancouver and we grew it to hundred people. But you know, the reason, you know, you say, oh, it'll never work. And I, well, and I can see why, because we had it, we based it on this like far-fetched newfangled technology that everybody knew would never catch on called the cell phone. And, um, you know, it, we were going to focus on the wireless game and, and particularly cellular technology, right? And uh, 1991, the phone had been around like five, six years something like that. And, um, and, uh, ironically, the name of the company that had hired me was called Interfax. Like they didn't sell fax machines, but it was one of the biggest hurdles we always had. Oh, they're like, Oh, do you sell fax machines? I'm like, no, I don't sell fax machines. Right. <laughs> and, uh, but, um, you know, of course the, the fax machine kind of, you know, went up and down really quickly in terms of its, its usefulness. Right. And, um, but yeah, so the cell phone actually, you know, it kind of took off a little bit, kind of sort of as we, as we know today. Right. And so when my, when this company, uh, bankrupted us and we, I had to either, I basically, you know, I, the government hired me out of college and, um, you know, somehow I wangled together a way of, of applying for that job, um, at my first sales job, but I've never, I never, you know, had a resume and a you know, um, any experience finding jobs or whatever. So I quit the government. I got that sales job five years later. I quit the job, started my company 15 years later. It was bankrupt and I, I had no, I didn't have a job and I didn't even know how to do a resume. And to me, it was more frightening to figure out a fill out a resume and go on job interviews than it was to restart a company. And so I decided that I was going to restart the company and, um, and I had made note of you know, some of the things, um, around the way the business had, had evolved culturally and, um, you know, that I didn't really like and that, but I'd lost sort of, you know, at a hundred people, I just lost control of the, you know, all, all, all the messaging and, and what have you. And so I wanted to start a new company and, and it was going to be, you know, 
run a different way. And, um, you know, and the, the core tenant of it is being a pleasure to do business with. And I mean, but truly being, not just saying that, you know, l- truly living that. And we, we live that to this day. And, um, and so, um, within a week, I, I incorporated a new company and, um, you know, my name, it's Glenn Poulos. So I basically, I started with my name, GP, my initials, right? And I said, okay, well, my middle name is James. So JIP wireless doesn't sound very good. So why don't you buy a vowel? So I bought a first vowel. I t- started with A and I went with A, G-A-P. Oh, that's Gap, Gap wireless. Okay, boom, it was named. In 10 minutes, I had the company named. And of course, I didn't realize a year later that the Gap clothing company would uh, would bring me to the the trademark tribunal, um, you know, for trying to uh, put off or whatever they call it on, uh, on, on the naming. Right. And, um, they wanted me to change the name, but I ended up winning, uh, on the basis that it was my name, but they were mad because the year we started our company gap wireless, they came out with a new product called the gap wireless bra. And <laughs> they were so upset, you know, P PO, as they say, um, that whenever you would Google Gap Wireless, their their bra would constantly come up underneath us, right? And they were so frustrated by that, right? But ultimately, we came to a settlement and we got to keep the name Gap, Gap Wireless, and um, and we were we were just acquired in February. Uh, I have a partner. Uh, we were acquired in February of 2022, a few months ago, uh, by a U.S. company called NWS Wireless, much bigger company. Um, and just, uh, it's a growing private equity kind of a thing. And we've agreed to stay on and help them grow the business for a number of years. And then, you know, fade off into the sunset in a few years. And that's, that's how it happened. That's awesome. I, uh, I love that story. That's, uh, that's really cool. And yeah. then, uh, and, and then share a little bit as well about, obviously you, um, you mentioned that you've got a, uh, a, a book there too, with a few of these stories, like, tell us yeah. like, when, when did you decide to, uh, write that and what's that, what's that book all about? So, yeah, so uh, the book, it's called Never Sit in the Lobby. And, um, and of course, so many people today, they sell on LinkedIn and stuff. And they're like, what lobbies? Who goes to the lobbies anymore, right? And I'm like, dude, I go to the lobbies. Like, we're face-to-face selling, you know, we're selling uh, $100,000 systems or we're selling, you know, we're selling antenna technology to, you know, major major carriers. You know, we have to go visit them. There's no, our stuff doesn't sell online. Absolutely not. And um but it's called Never Sit in the Lobby. And, you know, a long time ago, uh, when I was out uh, working for that first sales company, you know, I started to accumulate um, and watch what other people were doing. And some of them were good rules and some of them were bad rules, like rules to avoid and rules to emulate, right? So I started naming the rules after people and I liked the word factor. So I would call it like the Tony factor, the Brian factor, and things like that. And I would write them down and I would keep track of them. And then I started repeating them to people. And I'm like, oh, you need to do the, you know, the Tony factor on that one, you know? And, um, and so, and in the book, I had to change all the names, right? <laughs> Cause some of them are first like name, last name kind of things. And, uh, so I had to come up with, uh, I had to come up with, you know, uh, aliases to protect all the guilty. And, um, the, uh, and the funny thing is now it's like, people are, are testing me like, but, oh, well, what about this, ch-, you know, the chapter and I've, I, I can't remember the the made up names, but I because I remember them for thirty five years being the real person, right? And <laughs> yeah, yeah. But anyways, the um, so I started repeating them, and people would laugh and they say, "Oh my god, that's hilarious," or whatever. They say, "Oh, that's a great, you know, that's a great rule," or whatever. You know, I'm gonna remember that. 
And then a few guys caught on and they said, hey, can you come to my company and tell my coworkers about some of your rules? And so I started doing some some public speaking for for a, for a short period of time at that time. And then a few people were pandering and saying, oh, you should write a book. And I'm like, oh yeah, you know what? I should. And of course, you know, uh, I promptly did not write a book. Right? <laughs> and, and all the time went by. And then, but I kept writing down the rules over the years. Same book. I kept the same book all those years. And I would write down, I would name it after a person and I would write down the basics of the rules so that I would never forget it. Kind of like writing down punchlines to jokes. It's enough so that you can remember the joke, right? And um, and over the years, I started accumulating them or whatever. And then in March 2020, uh, Canada went into full lockdown for, uh, uh, you know, for the, for the pandemic. And of course, in Canada, probably similar to yourself, we were in a fairly rigid lockdown, right? Like virtually everything was closed. And of course, there was no entertainment. There was no nothing public, and there was no fraternizing or, or whatever. So we basically we were uh, an essential service. So I had to go to work and keep my warehouse and my uh, open. Most of my people went home, but but um, I would go to work every day. I would come home at night. I'd have to stay at home on the weekends. We sat at home and did nothing, right? So I said, "Hey, there's the perfect time for me to write a book." So I googled how to write a book and. It said, the guy said, and it was, it was actually a podcast and, uh, the guy said, it's easy. He said, you just have to commit to writing 500 words every morning and you'll have the book in no time. And I, I thought to myself, well, I can't really, I'm probably not going to do it every morning, but I would actually commit to writing 2000 words between Saturday and Sunday. Right. And uh, which is my day off, you know? And, um, and so I said, I'm not, I'm going to, every day I'm going to write 2000 words on the weekend until the book's done, right? And so I started that in March 2020. And then um, I, uh, I found a service that provides uh, editors and copywriting and um, uh, sort of, uh, yeah, copy editing, content editing, proof checking, fact checking. And then also help you with uh, teaching you how to market the book, like how to get it on Amazon, how to format it. And they, it was really like a recipe system for uh, writing books, but you actually do all the work and you get 100% of the rights. You're self-publishing it. It's published by Oak Blue Press. Um, it's basically Oak is Oakville, Ontario is where I live. And then Blue is for Blue Mountain, where I have a ski chalet up north in northern Ontario. So I came up with Oak Blue Press. That's who published the book, right? And um, But yeah, so the joke is that I wrote 2,000 words until I got to 75,000 words. Then I sent it to the first uh, content editor. And when she removed the F word from the book, I was now at 71,000 words. And she said, dude, you can't swear that much uh, in a book. And uh, she says, you know, you can say the F word three times and God damn it, a couple and that's it. Right. And I'm like, okay, fine. We'll go with 71,000 words. And so they helped me with all that uh, part of it. And in uh, literally the week that I signed the business to sell my business, the book was launched on, on Amazon and other places in North America. And it was the best of times, the worst of times, right? Because the, you know, this private equity firm was buying it. They were expect, and I, I was, you know, they're expecting one, 10,000% of my attention. And of course you're launching a book and it's somewhat distracting. Let's put it that way. Right. And, yeah. um, but, um, so I probably could have timed it better, but it was just, it was just, uh, the, the book got delayed a bit and the, the bio got delayed a bit and, you know, I couldn't get in the way of either one of them at one, at one point they overlap, but, um, yeah. So February was a big month and, um, yeah. And, uh, you know, uh, I've seen a few other people write books in the 
since then. And then, you know, they've all used that same sort of method of just saying, okay, these are my days, these are my times, and I'm, you know, I'm going to turn everything off, be on D, you know, we'll do not disturb on the phone and turn off the distractions and just get to that number, whether it's 500, 1,000, 2,000 words, and that, it really does work. And literally anyone can do it. And, um, you know, uh, although I'm super motivated, I'm also like highly procrastinating in na- in my nature as well, right? Um, why would I do it today when I procrastinate until tomorrow, right? And so, you know, uh, um, and uh, but you know, I did I did set aside the time, and so I anyone anyone that's listening that is thinking about, hey, can I write a book? It's it, you really can, and and you can just Google all these uh, you know book book uh, launching services, and they will help you to figure out all those parts there's a lot of pieces to that puzzle i never i don't think i would have figured it all out on my own really uh in a proper amount of time so that's how i did it awesome. i love it yeah and um then as we get towards the end of our time here together i have to, i always like to ask the same question at the end of the podcast too which is is there a question which i haven't asked you which i should have uh yeah <clears throat> what usually uh the one of the one of the favorite questions i like to answer is you know what's what's the most important lesson in the book right mm. and um so that's that's something that you haven't asked me and um you know it's definitely something that you should uh, you know it, that's my answer what's what's the what's the most important uh lesson well i'm gonna give you a two-part answer i hope that's okay hope we <laughs> squeeze it in so what I like to say the, is the most important lesson from the book was the lesson that I forgot to write and didn't put in the book. And that was that, um, and as I like to say it, you know, not mincing words is don't get fat, right? And uh, the, uh, you know, I'm 60 years old now, um, you know, and, you know, I lived the life of salespeople, dinners and things like that and whatever. And my weight's been up and down, whatever. But, you know, as I got older, I, you know, and during the pandemic and whatever, I, I, I took my eye off the ball and it's been incredibly difficult, you know, to get that part back in order. And I mean, if you don't have your health and all that stuff, it's none of it, the rest of it is quickly, you realize isn't worth anything. So you want to make sure you keep that on point throughout, you know, while you're, while you're working on your money and your game and your, you know, and your business and what have you is always focus on staying healthy and fit, right? And, um, the, but the other, the other lesson that I love sharing from the the book is called, uh, you only get forever to make another impression. Right. And, um, and so a lot of people kind of like look up going, what, what do you mean? I thought my mom said the best, impre- the, you know, the first impression is the most important impression. Right. I'm like, yeah, I'm like, yeah. And every impression is the first impression I said, you know, and I always tell, you know, basically give them the analogy of look you know when your boss walks by and he gander you know looks over at you and he sees that you alt tab on your keyboard from instagram over to the crm and start tapping away like you can never do it fast enough his eyes and brain are going to be all you know he's going to see that you were right you just made an impression Mm -hmm. right so pay attention to when you hear his footsteps in the hallway and when you hear them alt tab then don't wait right and always be making a good impression. When you see the bosses walking down the hallway, be on point. And then when they walk by, say, oh, you know what? Can I ask you a quick question? I'm working on this deal with so-and-so, blah, 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 blah. And always be on point. Always, always be making a good impression. Because whether you know it or not, you're making an impression. The question is, is it a good one? So, you know, that's uh, that's one of the things I uh, I love to share. So, 
I love it. I love it. And then, uh, Glenn, for anyone that's listening and they're going, all right, I want to find out more about what Glenn's up to, find a copy of the book, things like that. My website, which is uh, glennpoolis.com, G-L-E-N-N-P-O-U-L-O-S.com. Beautiful. We will have that linked up in the show notes. And uh, for anyone, if you're listening to this, maybe you need a little bit of uh, sales inspiration or maybe you're uh, spending too much time sitting in the lobby. Make sure you share this episode with other people so they can hear a little bit of Glenn's wisdom from today. Glenn, really appreciate you making the time to jump on. It's been great chatting with you. Yeah, same here. Thanks, Kip. Cheers.